This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. are left in the year not enough i don't know like six okay five or six (laughs) well we're coming down to the wire here in the great page race of 2016 were you aware that you were in the great page race of 2016 i wasn't until somebody like sent us a facebook message and said that she had counted up all (laughs) the pages and all the books that each of us had read all year Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And our lovely lovely listener, Melissa, ooh, that's a tongue twister, uh, <laughs> wrote in to let us know. And I think she'd mentioned this on the Goodreads group. We do have we a, do have a group. Goodreads group. We haven't talked about it in a bit, but it's, um, yeah, some pretty good discussions going on over there. Yeah, hit it up. Um, about which of us had read more just pages of books this year and she went through painstakingly using the goodreads database uh not necessarily knowing exactly what editions we are reading but that's a pretty good approximation Mm -hmm. and she has found so far that as of snow crash uh andrew has read 8204 pages and i have read 8056 pages so i just gotta say like i'm glad i'm ahead and I was like down sure. a book compared to you when those numbers were run. But I feel like I read 1Q84 and I read Infinite Jest and like I should be further ahead than that. Yeah. I really you, feel. Your immediate reactions to this data was that we were headed for some sort of terrible Brexit ending where I would still end up winning. Mm-hmm. Um, Even though I had done way more work. Way more work. the better yes. choice. <laughs> now, what I don't know, I haven't gone back and looked through the data, which does exist. It's just the list of episodes on our website. I don't know about guest episodes. Like I, What she said was I think she had discounted any books that we both read or any Choose Your Own Adventures and stuff like that. I'm pretty sure she would have filtered out guest episodes. No, too. I think she would have. What I don't know is I don't know what that means for the literal book count between the two of us because I do know you tackled two pretty lengthy books this year. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, so I don't know how I'm still that close to you is I what I'm saying. I assume that guest episode page counts are like a third party. Candidate, oh, God. And you would never want to. <laughs> Now, if we had held this election last year, because it is an election, I what uh, I would have probably—it's a race. It's not an election. You don't call. You don't go to play the ponies and call it like a horse election or like a speed election. <laughs> it's well, a race. It's a contest. Well, we do live in a post-fact era, so I all can call elections it whatever I want. are contests, but not all contests are elections. Oh, that's good. That's good. So mm-hmm. we'll keep you updated, Melissa. Stay vigilant. Uh, let us know how we're doing, and at the beginning of 2017, we will crown a winner. Hmm. 
if that's what you want to call it. The real winner is the listener, if I do oh, say so myself. Let's, ugh. Andrew, what Yo. book are we talking about this week? We talk about books every week on the show. One of us read them. You know the deal, everyone. <laughs> I read The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Um, we've read Gaiman before, sort of, insofar as we read um, Good Omens, which was co-written by him and by Terry Pratchett. Sure. Who did, did Terry Pratchett pass away this year or was that last year? So, okay, I re-listened to that episode, the beginning of that episode, and okay. it was the beginning of this year of our Lord 2016, mm-hmm. and Terry Pratchett passed away in 2015, and we okay, had cool. the exact same question. <laughs> okay. The time, it all runs together. Time is fluid and... Yeah, as as this book talks about, sure, so time is a fluid thing, and it's it kind of loosey goosey depending on who you are and where you are and what you're doing. So we're going to talk about Neil Gaiman for a few minutes, as is our want, and then I'm going to ask Andrew to tell us all about the book that he read for this week's show. Uh, but I do want to mention that if for those of you who don't like frequent our social media pages, you may not have heard that we have launched the T-shirt wing of our uh, merch enterprise. The folks at Cotton Bureau hooked us up. So we're going to tell you a little bit more about that later on in the show. Mm-hmm. But t-shirts are available. If you go to bit.ly slash overdue shirts, all one word. They're very overdue. You can get there. And then also we have stuff. Uh, we have links up on facebook.com slash overdue pod and twitter.com slash overdue pod. So we'll talk about those a little bit more later as well as other merch stuff. But first, Craig, refresh everyone's memory about Neil Gaiman. Sure. He was born in 1960 in Hampshire, United Kingdom. Uh, he was born to a Jewish and Scientologist family. Uh, he had two younger That's sisters, an I believe. An interesting religious cauldron. Yeah, I think one of his sisters referred to, like, both of them were their family's religion. I don't think Gaiman himself has, is particularly attached to either faith, at least. I think he, he deals a lot with, like religious figures and and tropes and stuff in his work i think but the idea of faith yeah certainly i I, I don't know how overtly religious he is himself um and actually the it it affected what schools he went to i don't believe he went to in the uk somewhere like oxford or anything like that i don't know exactly which school he would have tried to go to but his uh father's attachments to the church of scientology did like prevent him from a, entering a traditional boys' school in the UK, which is not even a thing. I don't even think about Scientologists being outside of America. I don't. No, I guess I don't. I don't. It's just Hollywood, the religion in my brain. I know that's. I know that that's like not true, but Tom Cruise has done a lot. Certainly, to my in brain. the popular, yeah, in the popular imagination, it's pretty much just the purview of celebrities and and such who have a lot of money to give to Scientology sure uh his first book was um well well, first he said that he uh he said on his website that he was a quote feral child raised in libraries uh and cites librarians for his love of books I know we have a lot of librarians that listen to the show so everyone give them a shout out vis-a-vis the voice of Neil hey guys why don't you check this out because you like checking stuff out so much. You know what I have to say to that, Andrew? Mm-hmm. Shh. You just shush me like a librarian. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good joke. Uh, 
So one of the first two books that he published was a, bi- a biography of Douglas Adams, but his first book, which he regrets with an intense fervor, uh, was a biography of the band Duran Duran. Sure, makes sense. Uh, he was 22, and he got a phone call from a publisher that said, would you like to write a rock and roll biography for us? And he said, yeah, I could write about David Bowie or Elvis Costello or Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. And they said, no, 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 no. Would you like to write about Duran Duran, Barry Manilow, or Def Leppard? <laughs> And which did he well, went with Duran Duran? He, yes, because he didn't want to listen to 18 Barry Manilow records, apparently. And I don't even know, like, how many Def Leppards are there even, like, Def Leppard musics? I don't, I, they, I don't know. How There's prolific the pour are some, they? Pour some sugar on me. Yeah, that's a good one. Hey, Craig, what has nine arms and sucks? Oh, Andrew. <laughs> I think it's Def Leppard, right? Def Leppard, okay, yeah. Okay, that's that's yeah. my favorite. It's my favorite joke ever of any <laughs> genre. It's the best joke. Well, Science you, has shown. I'm glad you shared that with us. That is number one among jokes. Uh, I found this interesting. This is all this coming from a Telegraph article. Um, he went down to the BBC press office and just like bought a bunch of their press clippings about Duran Duran and wrote the book based on them. And then... Uh, it was a bestseller for exactly one week, and then the publisher folded, and the mm-hmm. book disappeared. And he, okay. he has refused to let it come back into print because he hates it so much. <laughs> uh, auspicious beginnings for young Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to start somewhere, you know? Like, all got to start get somewhere. too hung up on it. He then got into comics. He had struck up. Uh, he had become a fan of Alan Moore's work, and he later would strike up a friendship with him that got him into... You know, almost writing some Swamp Thing books. Um, his first one of his first series is called Black Orchid, which was published in DC, and then Sandman followed from there. That's like the, if you've heard of Neil Gaiman before, it's probably because someone tried to get you to read Sandman. Um, it was the first like comic or graphic novel to receive the World Fantasy Award, I think, in 1991. Sandman's pretty good. I think last time we did a Neil Gaiman cast, I insisted that you should read it at some point. But all right. It's not. I don't think it's one of those things where we could get away with just like reading. We'd have to. Yeah, we'd have to do the whole thing. Um, I I haven't even read the whole thing. I've read most of it, but his those books were expensive, and I was reading them at a time where I was on a McDonald's (laughs) drive-through cashier's salary, and I just like I could either buy used PlayStation games at Babbage's or I could buy Sandman, and you know what I did? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Uh. His first novel, as we covered on our, our show almost a year ago, was Good Omens, co-written with Terry Pratchett. His first solo novel was actually the novelization of his teleplay, Neverwhere, which was uh, like 1996 urban fantasy BBC miniseries. It's the most British thing I've ever heard. Um, <laughs> That's a lot of that British His adjectives. first solo novel is the novelization of that. Uh he would later go on to co-write the script for the feature film Beowulf, starring a CG snake, Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to his website, he's one of the first writers to establish a blog in 2001. Nice work. I think I, I think what they mean is as a like way to interact with your fans. But mm-hmm. um, 
And most like most fantasy author blogs still look like they were launched yeah, in yeah. 2001. <laughs> like, have you seen George R. R. Martin's blog? <laughs> That's what it looks like. Sure. Uh, he. What else? He currently lives in the United States. He moved there initially to Wisconsin to be with his first wife, Mary McGrath. They had three kids. He then moved to Massachusetts and also has a position at Bard College as of two or three years ago. He's now in what Wikipedia calls an open marriage with Amanda Palmer of the Dresden Dolls. um, And fun, like, small literary world. They were married uh, officially in the home of Michael Shabin and his wife, I, I yell at Waldman. So authors like to hang out with authors, it seems like. Yeah, and be in open marriages That's with true. each other. Yeah. I actually don't think she's an author, but No. Um <laughs> Well no, I meant like Shabin and Yeah, 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 yeah. Um his other books include American Gods, that's his breakout book, uh, followed up by Coraline. Uh, earlier works include Stardust and as I mentioned, Neverwhere. He's written an episode of Doctor Who because he's British. Um, yeah, I feel like you can't be a British author and not have gone through the Doctor Who grinder at some true. point. Uh, and on last on on the last episode where we talked about him, I mentioned the two other like big things you might come might come across with Neil Gaiman: his history with the Spawn franchise, where he created a couple characters, and there was a dispute as to whether or not it was for hire work or whether or not he retained the rights. Uh, which pro- he, there's like it went back and forth. He did get some rights. At one point, a judge actually had to proclaim the expressive work that is the comic book character Count Nicholas Coliostro was the joint work of Gaiman and McFarlane. I just, what are these Spawn characters? I don't even know. There are some things where you just you hear about them and you think to yourself, "Well, I'm never going to get into that." <laughs> I'm never going to make the time to understand enough about that to get what that reference is. Yeah, it's fine. Like you should be allowed to do that, but um, it's, it's kind of freeing actually to like have to have that thought sometimes. To just know like, you're you not going to be into that. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just preemptively deciding that I don't care enough about that to get into it. <laughs> uh, See and you he, later, Spawn. He also is pretty close friends with Tori Amos. He I he put Tori Amos in one of his books as a tree. And Tori Is the Amos. Tree's name Tori Amos? I believe so. It's at least named Tori. Uh, and he also, like, he is mentioned in a bunch of her lyrics, like in the song Space Dog, Where's Neil When You Need Him? Uh, in the song Tear in Your Hand or Tear in Your Hand, If You Need Me, Me and Neil Will Be Hanging Out with the Dream King. Neil says hi, by the way. Is it Tear in the Hand or Tear in the Hand? I don't know the name was I because it's it seems like it alters the meaning a lot. I really think it does, and I have no idea. It's probably tear, right? I hope so. Like tear in the hand. What does that mean? That's a different. That's for the Dresden Dolls. I think that's not (laughs) Tori Amos. Uh, That's all the gaming facts that I have. Andrew, is there anything else that you want to mention, or should we talk about shirts and then this book? Uh, Let's do the second thing. So what else do we need to know about t-shirts? Um, what else do you need to know about t-shirts? Um, we are selling two different t-shirt designs with uh, the people over at Cotton Bureau. It's just the distribution method that makes the most sense for us, I think, because we're a 
small outfit and the less we are like shipping our own stuff i think the, the happier everybody's gonna be yeah i think so <laughs> but the deal is you go to bit.ly slash overdue shirts um all one word and uh, we've got two designs we've got an overdue logo design and we've got a try to be happy design um you go over there and you can pick from we've got like three different colors for each shirt we've got a couple different types of shirts tri blends like a very soft sort of cotton and one's just like 100% cotton yeah it's more traditional it's got a classic sort of feel yeah head over there and buy those shirts like within the next week cuz what they're going to do is they're going to take orders for the next at like as we record it it's 8 days as you listen it'll be like 7 days in a little bit Go over and buy those shirts. They will take orders, and then at the end of that of that period, they will print as many as they need, and then they will ship them out to you. They're currently saying that um, it should ship on December 13th, and it should arrive quite a bit before December 25th if buying one as a gift is like a, a going concern for you. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that. Craig, is there anything else about the shirt specifically or anything else you want to talk about? No. I'm really happy with them. They came out really well, and people have been asking for them for a while. Um, yeah, we're just excited to finally get the ball rolling. And like Andrew said, we only have you know, eight or nine or seven days, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, so head on over there and pick one up so that we can get the printing good to go. Yes. And um, at some point, hopefully in the next week, we've got just about all the like proofs and sample stuff that we need. Um, we're going to also be listing tote bags and mugs and stickers and bookmarks. And I think that's it, right? Yeah, that's it right now. Um, we'll be listing that stuff. It's going to be a similar thing. We're going to be like selling and processing and shipping those ourselves, but it's going to be a similar sort of thing is we're going to take orders for a couple of weeks and then we'll get as many printed as we need and we will send them out to you guys. So um, be on the lookout for that. We're we're really happy with all the design work that was done. We had a few different artists who we commissioned stuff from, and we'll um, we'll set up like a page on the website where we give those people credit and like you could and where you can go like find them and and ask them to do stuff for you if you want. Um, but yeah, we're we're happy with how stuff came out. We it it did not happen as quickly as we would have wanted it to, which is mostly on us. But now that it's here, I think they it all looks pretty good. Um, I think it's all pretty reasonably priced, and we hope that you guys enjoy them because it's been a long time coming, right? That's yeah, right. And then those of you who were um who have been patrons, like supporters of the show for a long time, we're gonna we're figuring out how to um get you guys your like the free stuff that we promised you guys would get for supporting the show. So stay tuned for that. We'll send out messages to to patrons and that'll all get taken care of in due time. Overdue. This is the merch you've been meaning to buy. Nice. Excellent. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. What do you want to know about the ocean at the end of the lane? Here's some stuff that you could know. Okay. Uh, it was it was published in June of 2013. It's pretty is more recent than I was expecting it to be, but Gaiman's pretty prolific and he's still still trucking. So, um he began writing it as a novella for his wife Amanda Palmer, who we mentioned before. Um but it expanded into short novel territory pretty quickly from that because I think he just realized that it wanted to be longer than that pretty like pretty quickly like pretty soon into the writing process okay um he says that she like she doesn't really like fantasy which seems like a, which seems too bad for them 
seems she like she's really probably like... very tolerant. Right. It's like, yeah, when when we're like recording podcasts or playing video games and our wives are like politely interested for, for a bit and then they go do something else. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so he he made sure to put in some stuff that he thought she would like. And um, so it is a sort of fantasy ish, supernaturalist ish kind of book. But it's also got like one of the big themes is like the transition or the disconnect between childhood and adulthood. Oh, okay. And so as a result, at least to my like to my eye, it's got sort of a Bradbury esque like something wicked this way comes sort of vibe almost. Sure, sure. Um, the like the father son relationship in this book is not as good as in that book, but <laughs> we can talk about that a little bit more later. Um. And so, the, and there's this this family featured prominently in this book of, like, not witches, but definitely like supernatural beings. Um, the Hempstocks. The Hempstocks. Okay. And this family has appeared in some form in a lot of other Gaiman books. There, um, if you look for like Gaiman and the Three Ladies, you'll find a lot of writing about this sort of thing. But they've um, these characters have apparently neo pagan roots in. Uh, in an archetype called the maiden, the mother, and the crone. So there's like a an older like matriarch who's the most powerful of the three, and then a middle one, and then a, a younger one. Wait a second. Um, what's up? We just watched the movie Hocus Pocus like a couple weeks ago, Andrew. Oh man, is there a maiden mother in the crone? Are you the, kidding me? In the Hocus Pocus? What is okay, so it's it's Bette Midler. Sarah, right? good, Sarah Jessica Parker in that movie is no maiden though. Well, like, but, are you kidding? She's trying to she's trying to Get down with everybody. Yeah, but in the three of them, she's definitely the maiden. And then there's uh, Kathy and Jimmy riding around on <laughs> <Kathy and Jimmy. laughs> on uh, a vacuum cleaner. And then it, it's mm-hmm. Bette Midler, right? Who is so. the lead? Um, You're the one married to the one who's sitting next to me, quoting all the lines and hocus pocus all night. Yeah, that's true. I have. That's a good party. Yeah, that was a good party. It but, sounds sarcastic, but no, it wasn't. There but was I like think good, that there's three, like good chips and dip, that, and Craig's wife knows all the lines in hocus pocus. <laughs> that three, that trio of which thing is certainly uh, around. I want to know. I would like to go back now and look at Wrinkle in Time and see if there's any. Parallels is Hamlet there. a trio of witches too? That is uh, Macker or Macbeth or yeah, whatever the is the Scottish play, not Hamlet. Macbeth, you're not like putting it on so you can call it what it is. I don't. I literally do not like to say the name of that play. I Macbeth. You... Macbeth. 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 Okay. Well, when a bunch of books just like burst into flames because you just did that. When you you say Macbeth three times and Beetlejuice comes out and he puts on a performance of Macbeth for you. It's very avant-garde. Yeah. <laughs> it is Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. I did not know that you had actually seen Willem Dafoe's Hamlet before, Andrew. <laughs> where where Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice performed Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. It's okay. pretty good. Three stars. So there five. are three witches in this book. All this to say, there are three witches. The the hemp stocks, and yeah, they are. I don't know if they're mentioned explicitly by like if they're called that same thing, but he does say in the like the acknowledgments at the end that they've been like living in his head for a long time. So they are like they do crop up in other okay in other works of his. But like that's pretty much the background. You know, it's a recent book, so it um. 
It uh, was voted Book of the Year in the British National Book Awards, but other than that, like it's not it's not some like forty year old book that people have been reading for generations and generations. It's just like a a solid shortish supernatural novel that's sure. also about childhood. And it was recommended to us by a uh, Patreon donor Natalia. So I want to thank Natalia for that. Thanks, Natalia. So when and where does this book take place? Um, where is somewhere in like ruralish England? Right. Um, when is? I assume it's around when Gaiman would have been growing up. So like late sixties, early seventies. Okay. Um, it's not like. Technology doesn't play a part, so it's not, but so like the timing isn't like super crucial. Sure, sure. Just that um, when he's over at the Hempstock's house, like eating honeycomb and stuff, it's <laughs> it's modern enough for that to be quaint. Okay, like there are, would there be a refrigerator, perhaps an ice box? I'm not sure if there's a fridge or an ice box. Like the kitchen is newer, so the kitchen has electricity, but he definitely does take a bath like in a wash basin. Okay. And, now you keep and saying he goes to the bathroom in a chamber pot. Oh, fun. Who are you talking about? I'm talking about the um unnamed seven year old protagonist who's so this the the book is a it's got a frame narrative around it, which means that some people have said like we we use words like epistolary and frame narrative and like we're cool with it because we're old hands at this point. We know everything sure. about books. But I think we haven't we gotten some comments lately that asked us to like explain yeah. the terms a little bit more when we use them. Yeah, there there were we got a couple of those, but we also got one that called us on using epistolary wrong recently in the heat of the moment. I assume that was you. I think it was you. It was probably you though. I mean, I don't want to go pull up the Twitter right now, but I think it was <laughs> you. You just you like that word more. You like to say epistolary. More. I do like to. It reminds me of flowers. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like it has statement. it has nothing to do with flowers. Andrew, tell me about <laughs> this boy's frame narrative. So this boy is an old boy, which is to say he's a grown up. <laughs> Jesus. He's a the frame narrative is so a frame narrative is what happens when you get a little snippet of a story and then you like flashback to something else or you read about it in letters it's like a story within which the main story takes place or a story within a story yeah it like and you get it at the beginning and at the end and maybe sometimes it'll pop up in the middle like the muppet christmas carol but princess bride or princess bride sure grandpa grandpa that's all i remember about princess bride (laughs) that's all you okay inconceivable (laughs) grandpa it's my Cliff's Notes version of Princess Bride. So why do we care about this old boy and why is he telling a story about being young? So he's come back to his like his like hometown for a funeral. And um and he like he's you know, he he's caught up with people, but he kinda wants to get away from them for a little bit. So he finds himself driving around and he finds himself driving back to the place where he grew up. And the house that he grew up in has long since been knocked over and replaced with like condos. Oh, fun. Um, for people who work in the city but like want to drive away at the end of the day. <laughs> Can't imagine why. Yeah, I don't know. And um and from there he finds himself like driving down the lane because at the end of the lane is the like the hemp stock farm and mm. house. And um as he gets closer to the this place, he finds himself like remembering stuff, including the fact that they had like a lake at the end of their little lane that 
they called an ocean or that that his friend Letty Himstock, who is the youngest one, she's like she looks like she's 11. She's probably not. She's older than that. I bet. She looks like she's 11. She's the maiden. OK. Of the three. OK. And um, she in particular called the ocean. And from there we get we get thrown back to this the story about his childhood and a bunch of stuff that happened to him. Okay. Um so it starts more or less like you get a little bit of like introduction like you like he had a kitten and he loved this kitten and it loved him and then somebody hit it with a car. Whoa. <laughs> and the person the person who hit it like brought him a new like grown up horrible cat that hated it. Oh, man. but it's like a cat for a cat, and so it's fine. Like, That's this not is... not all cats are the same, though. Yeah, but this is this this is how like reading this book, I realize now, like talking about it, like this is one of the ways in which the book sets up the difference between like kids and adults, young and adults, old. Like, yes, yes. Like think they know everything, but like not everything is as simple as they seem to think it is sometimes. Sure. Or, like several times throughout the book, it said that like. If there's if there are if there are multiple paths to a place like adults will take the the obvious one like the paved one the official one and kids like know all the all the secret paths and the shortcuts and stuff. Hmm. Okay. So like you grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, so you probably didn't like you didn't have like a lot of like woods and stuff to wander around in, right? We had. Uh, I didn't go tramping through the woods too often. We had a big field. Across the street behind my friend's house that we messed around in a lot. And then there were a bunch of trees by, like, in between my neighborhood and the cemetery down the road. So we would go messing around in there for a while. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. like I didn't have a friend's house that was, like, butting up against the woods. Let's go running around. And I wasn't a Boy Scout because I was lazy. So I wasn't <laughs> going and playing in nature. Some say that playing Final Fantasy games on your Super Nintendo is a lot like being a Boy Scout. Now, yes, as is standing in your friend's backyard and like acting out Final Fantasy because you're a nerd. Like that's a, a thing you could do. You're what still outside getting vitamin D. You're just not learning how to build fires or anything useful. <laughs> You don't get badges. Did were you a woodsy kid? Um, for a little while, for a bit in there, because we lived in like rural Ohio, and that's oh, sure. most of what there was to do. It was both like, so there was some wood like in between the house that we rented for a while, and these woods. There was like this this big this. So there were thicker woods like further back, but then right when we moved in, there were some like sparser woods, but people like plowed over those to make a field and so not only did we have some like woods like way back that we could go to if we really wanted to but we also had this big old pile of like dead old trees that they had like scooped into Uh a corner yes and so we had like a little clubhouse in the in the like tree pile yes um and then there was a path that we would go back to and there are woods back there and it like now that I'm grown up, I know that like my uncle and his like my two uncles, one of them's not my uncle anymore because they got divorced and one of them's not my uncle anymore cuz he passed away. Um but that they, they would like go back there and like chew skull and like drink beer and stuff. Like it's the stuff that we would do if we had a woods, you know. <laughs> Maybe not the skull, but 
Yeah. It's the things that we would do if it's we It's like the had difference between what, like, kid, like, kids go in the woods and they just, like, tramps around, trapes around in the woods, but grown-ups go back there and there's, like, beer time. Yeah, there's, um, in my friend's backyard, he did have a bunch of trees before that field hit, and we had, like, it wasn't a clubhouse, but we had, like, walls of firewood that we had turned in, that was no one was ever going to use, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. into, like, a little, like, almost like an unfinished Minecraft house, like in around these trees. And <laughs> as, like that first Minecraft house you build where it's like part dirt yep. and like part tree. And, yeah, okay. And as we were putting those walls of logs together, we found a, a, a sexy, sexy magazine. Ooh, just like kids before the internet. But not a visual one. Mostly like, a, like fiction. No, it was mostly like people writing letters in. It was not oh, like play- a penthouse was, forum sort was, of like. Yes, I can't believe it happened to me. It was pen. It was whatever's like three rungs below penthouse. I don't know the name of it, but like when you got the re- rejection letter from penthouse, you sent it to this place. Yes, <laughs> and it was like it wasn't even titillating. It was just kind of confusing. That's why like, they left it in the woods. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably this isn't true. this isn't doing anything for me. I'm gonna leave this in the woods. <laughs> Take me back to Neil Gaiman's woods, Andrew. Well, I didn't find any dirty magazines back there. <laughs> okay. if that's what you're asking. Uh, <laughs> so the story begins with our protagonist having a seventh birthday, and his parents are not super well off. Like I think they used to be a little bit more well off, and they've come upon hard times, mm-hmm. and so they are kind of. Scraping to make ends meet, and this kid used to have a a room like in the at the top floor of the house, and it had a little wash basin that was sized just for him, and he loved that room so much. But to make ends meet, his parents start letting that room out to people, mm. just like renting the room. And one of the people who rents the room is this opal miner. He mines opals. Sure, that's a. Very specific thing to mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't get a name for him either. He's just referred to as the Opal Miner. Okay. (laughs) And um, so what happens to him is that he steals their dad's car. Not cool. And suffocates himself in it. Whoa. Um, By, you know, doing the old, like, jamming the tailpipe up with mud and doing the, you know, the carbon monoxide thing, so... Um, and that apparently is based on a true story from Gaiman's childhood. So how's your childhood, dude? Oh, man. Uh, like, just stealing the car is like a rough thing. I mean, they got the car back. Well, no, but the moment where you realize someone took your parents' car is weird. and then, yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. they just like found it at the like the bottom of the hill, and it was, oh, yeah. Oh, Okay. Um, so what we find out, and we don't find this out through um, through the guy, like there, he does leave a note, but we find out about like the existence of the note and why he did what he did through the Hempstocks, because the Hempstocks live at like the end of the of the same lane that our protagonist and his family live on, and we get the story through the Hempstocks that he, the opal miner, um. He, you know, he had money and he also had money that his friends had entrusted him with. And so he went to go gamble with his money 
and he lost it. And then he was just going to gamble with his friend's money until he won all the money back. Of course. And you can guess how that went. Yeah. And so he, you know, in in despair ends his life. And so it's it's not it wasn't it's not clear to me like how the chicken and the egg situation here works. But either this dude brought some kind of spirit with him or his despair and his like need for money to like make his life okay again was so strong that it attracted this spirit. Okay. That is sort of the sort of starts giving money to everybody. Whoa. Our protagonist wins some kind of lottery and wins like 25 pounds. Um, the mom like gets a new job and it's, it's all like, and and the kid is like helping someone weed their garden or something, and he finds this jar with all these old coins in it, and they're worth like a lot of money too. Huh. So it all seems pretty benign at first, and then one evening our protagonist wakes up with like a shilling lodged in his throat, like something has oh. literally shoved a coin down his throat, and he like picks it out and Ugh. and he goes he goes to see the hemstocks about it because he's just he feels like something something weird's going on and letty hemstock the 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 maiden Mm -hmm. takes him into the woods on their property and they end up going into some kind of other dimension oh and it's not super like well fleshed out what this dimension is it's not super important but it's it's a world not our own and it's also implied that the hemstucks like they used to live somewhere else and when they moved to where they are now they just like brought some of this world with them if that makes sense yeah sure 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 it just like sticks to their shoes like toilet paper (laughs) (laughs) i guess but the order of events being you almost choked on a coin let me show you the world like let me tell you kind of just like you know this is this is a this is some kind of spirit and we gotta, we gotta, it's obviously gonna keep doing stuff until it hurts somebody. So let's go take care of it. Okay, cool. And so Letty and our, our protagonist go into these woods and they find this like big, like raggedy sort of like a gray and pink cloth monster. It's hard to describe because it changes forms a lot, but Mm -hmm. it's like, this like tattered cloth that takes on this appearance of a face. Oh, oh. if you can imagine that. I yes, I can. And so Letty like and Letty is is saying, you know, you're causing trouble. I'm gonna seal you off so you can't cause trouble anymore. And she can't like, as in so many fantasy books, like knowing something's name, like being able to name something is important. And she doesn't know this thing's name. Oh, okay. So she just sets up kind of a general purpose ward to to keep it enclosed. And what happens while she's doing this is the like the cloth face monster like spits this ball of cloth at our protagonist who without thinking reaches out and grabs it. Uh-oh. And what ends up happening is he brings something back with him. Always always happens mm-hmm. that way. And it ha- it's it it's in the form of first it's like a worm that he like picks out of his foot and washes down the bathtub drain. Yo. But then it takes the form of this babysitter lady called named Ursula Monkton. Wait, it went from being a cloth face to a worm to like a pretty au pair. 
<laughs> named Ursula Moncton. Okay, I'm getting a strong Stephen King vibe. Though I I, it doesn't feel how... like it's this spooky, but it feels like magic in the same way that Stephen King magic works. I think maybe explaining it sounds Stephen Kingy, but the writing is definitely not Stephen. Okay, King-y. okay. That, the that, writing yeah. is it's the writing is a little Bradbury ish and a lot Neil Gaiman ish. <laughs> like I I had already been exposed to Gaiman before, like we did the podcast at all. But the more I read of it, it's like a it's like the Vonnegut thing where like I already read it, and the more I read, like the more I want to read. But I can't. We can't just do like a Neil Gaiman cast. That, so. No, I'm sure I'm sure it exists somewhere. Shout out if you're listening, untitled Neil Gaiman cast. Mm-hmm. What man? What would that be called? Like. The, the, the sand cast. It'd probably be called American Pods. Um, okay, sure. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one's for free, internet. Yeah. I would also we accept... Are, we are going to need to take a little bit yeah. off the top. Of I'll also accept Pod Omens. It. It's the lesser of the two. Pod yeah. Omens isn't that good. If they, If, like, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett... Had a, did a podcast? Yes, they could call it Pod Omens, and I would be okay with it. But okay. American Pods would have. To... <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. So this au pair shows up. So uh, Mary Poppins is here. Mary Worm, but Poppins. like evil Mary Poppins. Okay, cool. <laughs> Where instead of a spoonful songs, of poison. <laughs> Yeah, singing songs and helping you clean up your room. She like bewitches and seduces your dad and then no. makes him try to drown you in the bathtub. Whoa. Um and that's it's not full it's not super fully explored the relationship between father and son here except that they didn't get along. Mm, okay. For a long time, but it is implied that she didn't like make him do the bathtub stuff. Oh, she unleashed it. Um, so talking about the the relationship between father and son here. Mm-hmm. Um, he never hit me. He did not believe in hitting. He would tell us how his father had hit him, how his mother had chased him with a broom, how he was better than that. When he got angry enough to shout at me, he would occasionally remind me that he did not hit me, as if to make me grateful. In the school stories I read, misbehavior often resulted in a caning or the slipper and then was forgiven and done, and I would sometimes envy those fictional children the cleanliness of their lives. Oh, man. Okay. Um, So it's, yeah, it's not not hitting but the dynamic ends up a little bit messier because the dad like sometimes has trouble keeping his temper under control so that is it's certainly exacerbated under ursula monkton but it's not like she's bringing out anything that that was not there before which yeah. sucks okay um I don't want to go too like blow by blow because I don't think that we need to. So like, do you have any questions so far, or like, is well, there anything you want to explore more, or do you want me to just like keep on plowing? I kind of what is like, what do we know about our boy? Like, what is he like? What is he? How does he respond to this like otherworldness that's going on? Because um, like a lot of these books. Like you said, this book is about the difference between like your young self and your adult self. So like how does this how does the introduction of Moncton factor into that? 
Well, and the, so the thing about that dynamic between childhood and adulthood is that we are getting this through the eyes of a child, but you do occasionally get reminded that it is being filtered through our frame narrative, which is being told by the adult. Okay. And so he'll he'll say things like, I do not miss childhood, but I miss the way I took pleasure in small things, even as greater things crumbled. I could not control the world I was in, could not walk away from things or people or moments that hurt, but I found joy in the things that made me happy. Mm, mm. Um, there's some other stuff. Yeah. Um, she. Okay. This is talking about Moncton. She really was pretty for a grown up, but when you're seven, <laughs> beauty is an abstraction, not an imperative. <laughs> I wonder what I would have done if she had smiled at me like that now, whether I would have handed my mind or my heart or my identity to her for the asking as my father did. Okay. Okay. There's like a thing where like, oh, Ursula Moncton is like leaning up against the fireplace and her skirt's hiked up and like dad's standing behind her. And hmm, that's curious. Whoa. Hmm. Interesting. How does boy's mom do with all this? Oh, she's at work. Oh, she just happens to get a new job like right before Ursula Moncton shows up. Just happens to, huh? And dad is just, dad's just coming home from work earlier than he's ever come home from work. No, dad. Okay. Um, I was a normal child, which is to say I was selfish and I was not entirely convinced of the existence of things that were not me. And I was certain, rock solid, unshakably certain that I was the most important thing in creation. There was nothing that was more important to me than I was. <laughs> Well, that is certainly what it is to be like seven. Like yes. you don't know, you don't know. It's getting more solid, but you have like object permanence and stuff. But well, there's still that just that little kernel of uncertainty. Well, and you have a you are beginning to understand that you like what you expect of yourself. You barely like you don't. I still. I think seven. I still was like amazed that teachers existed outside of school, but like. That's, could, yeah, that's always and even into like high school that gets weird where you like see a teacher at the gas station like buying oh, beer. That's so well. It's like, hey Mr. Stom, what are you doing? <laughs> that's my algebra teacher. Shout out to Mr. Stom. He seemed like like so many teachers I had, especially math teachers, like younger math teachers I yeah. had in high school were probably like pretty cool dudes who we heckled mercilessly because oh, we sure. were in high school. <laughs> Yeah, there are. I I have fond memories of the teachers that I'm sure if I had gone right into teaching in a high school outside of co- like right out of college, I would definitely have been. Like, what's up? That would be you. What's yeah. up, Mr. Sconier? We want to hang out in your room on a Friday and watch Boondock Saints. Like, let's do it. Oh, hey, let's make some jokes about your widow's peak <laughs> while we're at it. Yikes. So how does this progress? Like, what is the big arc? of this thing from here what is this monster doing so the the i mean the arc is and the the monster is described by the the by the um the hemp stocks as a flea and that's specifically because it kind of came to where it is on their backs like a yeah okay and they consider it as like more or less a nuisance like it shouldn't be in this world but it's also not a big deal and it's at some point um I think it's the middle hemp stock who just says, you know, I don't hate it. It's just like doing what it's just like an animal doing what comes naturally to it. And really like to its mind, it's just trying to make people happy by giving them like money and having sex with them and stuff. It's trying to give them what they need. <laughs> okay. 
And it's not really cognizant of the damage that it's doing Okay, as a side effect of that. So is is this a quest so, to defeat it or what? Well, s- sort of. So what happens is is Letty and our our boy go to go to get rid of it because it's been tormenting our boy and like ripping apart his family and like eventually if it's allowed to exist in the world long enough, like other stuff will start to go wrong and other yeah. people start to get hurt. So you just got to take care of it. Not a big deal, but you got to take care of it. So what they do is they they call in some like they're referred to as as many things. They're kind of like like carry on birds. They're called cleaners. They're some kind of also otherworldly entity that just comes and devours things and makes them not exist anymore. Whoa! So first, Letty tries to send. Ursula Moncton, who has another name, who I don't remember, it's not important, but like the the thing's real name that she didn't know the first time they ran into each other. She knows that now. And okay. so that gives her a little bit more like power in the situation. Cool. But um she tries to send her back, tries to like spare her, and she just won't go. So she calls in these these cleaners, and of course the thing that you call in to get rid of the monster is a monster that's worse than the first Always monster. worse. <laughs> Always worse. And so the rest of the book is kind of a it's a conflict between those monsters and our boy and the Hepstocks. And um and yeah, like I don't What's like at the stake o- though? Like what is is this like a save the world, or is it like we just got to get rid of these evil things? It's I mean, there, it it brushes up against save the world like right at the end. But okay. because we're getting this through the eyes of a child, like his whole world is his like himself and his family, and so those are kind of the stakes. That's what that's like. Okay, he doesn't want this monster to be tormenting him anymore. And because he's seven years old, like that's as big as the world really is to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like we like we are introduced to him as a child by like learning that nobody came to his seventh birthday party. So it's not like he it's not like a Stranger Things thing where it's a like a band of oh sure, sure. misfit kids like up against this thing. It's a like a bookish solitary kid up against this thing. Okay. All right. Um and so we we go through everything. There's there's some stuff with the lake and the ocean, there's some stuff that, that touches on what the hemp stocks are and what they know. I'm not going to, that gets into the realm of like spoilers that I don't have to spoil to talk about the book. So I'm not going to do it. Okay. And this book is like, it's pretty short. It took me like probably two and a half or three hours total to read. So you definitely just should go read it. If it sounds at all interesting up your alley yeah. at all. Cause it's like, it breezes by it's super fun. Gaiman is like a really engaging and fun writer. And I've, I've read like what, like three or four passages at this point that, yeah, that gives you some idea of the voice. So like, you kind of know what you're in for, but, um, so we jump back to the frame narrative. Okay. And so he's been remembering the stuff and he's talking to the hemp stocks and, and, um, we discover that he, he comes back to this place like periodically, like usually at inflection points in his life. Mm -hmm. But then as he leaves, he kind of forgets it again. Oh, Okay. Yeah. So like every time so it's, he comes back, and, and he has to re-remember it? Sort of, yeah. And and he doesn't even remember like having come back past times. They almost like they don't have like a little men in black flasher thing, but that's like the effect. And they can do that to people as they can kind of play with their perceptions of reality and and 
make themselves seem less conspicuous and, and just like get by that way. If that hmm. makes sense. Okay. Um, is he yeah, accrued, like he, is he accrued like experience having an effect on him as like a human? He just doesn't remember why. Well, so, so I guess his, his core internal conflict is what, what happens is so Ursula Moncton came to their world through like she hitched a ride in his foot. And so getting rid of her is one thing. And then getting rid of the like little tunnel, like the door back to the other dimension that she left behind. Sure. Is a, is a thing. So like the, the cleaners get rid of her and they get rid of most of the tunnel, which they like extracted from his foot. Gross. But she left like a little bit, like there's just a little bit like left in his heart. Oh, and so they need to, they want to get that out of him and they don't want to leave until they have. Oh. And so he sees them start to like devour the red, like the real material world that he knows. And he decides like as selflessly as a seven year old can that like he can sacrifice himself to make them stop. Okay basically so he can give up a part of himself so he try he tries to sacrifice himself and then letty sacrifices herself in a way to save him she's not dead but she is like wounded and she does like go away okay and so his deal like his his subconscious need to come back is driven by like is letty back can i talk to her again and also letty like gave me my life and like am i worth it Oh, sure. Like have I have I used it well? Yeah, okay. And there are no there are no clear answers to these questions. Yeah. It's just it's just a dude posing those questions to himself yeah. and the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, that's pretty much the book. Huh. That's a good wow, that's a good question. Yeah. Huh. Like I don't like I don't think either of us like well, because I was a premature baby, and you like had I was, a lot of like, I was heart problems, preemie and heart problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like nobody like put their lives on the line to like save us at any point. I don't think, but we do probably like owe our lives pretty literally to some pe- some doctors yep. somewhere who like may or may not even be around anymore. But yep, no, definitely. I don't know, it's it's an it's an interesting like thought. Is like are the people who have enabled your life like what are you doing with that? Yeah. Well, it's to most, are you living up to that? Yeah. Many of us don't have a concrete thing they can point to. That's like, this is the decision or these are the like special circumstances that allowed us to live a healthy life or, or, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, honestly, maybe like a more, it may be a question that people who like served in the military can identify a little bit more because like the, the, there, especially if you've like seen action in like the the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, like especially earlier on, mm-hmm. um, you know you can have you can have people like literally like take a bullet for you or or like or whatever, and so part of what those people have to deal with is not just like the trauma of having people trying to kill you, but also the trauma of like how do I how do I make what they gave up like worth it i guess yeah yeah well and yeah that trauma can be different for like people who are outright survivors versus people who actually there's that that was something that struck me this is a tiny tangent in the 
the last season of The Wire, there's that uh, veteran, like homeless veteran that they talk to who is suffering from PTSD because his, mm-hmm. his buddy lost his hands in an explosion. Mm-hmm. And like his buddy psychically is doing way better because he actually has a thing that they can give him to replace what happened to him. Yeah. And like he's going through treatment and that's tough, but he's fighting through it. He's just in a much better uh he's much much more stable place, whereas this other guy, like, just the experience of it rocked him and there isn't a like physical thing that someone can point yeah, to and right. treat. Um mm-hmm. which yeah, there's hmm. I mean I think that's that's true pretty much of pretty much anything is like when you have action items that where you can actually do something and have it like have it make a tangible effect. Yeah. Like that makes it way easier than having something like big and nebulous and Well and I was thinking about that when you were talking about when uh what's her name? Monkwort Monk Monk <laughs> Ursula parts? Monkton. Monkton, okay. Uh when she kind of unleashed the the anger in the dad or the, the impulse for physical violence in the dad. Cause like f- from some folks I've talked to, uh, who've had this experience, like, uh, people who are people who do have an inclination to abuse physically, like that can be a cut and dry thing in their mind. Like mm-hmm. they did it and now that's out of their system and now they're not mad anymore, which is kind of what the dad was saying where he's like, I I won't do this to you, but it would be easier if I did because now we wouldn't be in this like nebulous space where I'm mad at you and can't do anything about it. Right, and that that's that's a that's our like there's a human need for uh binary solutions to th- it's either this well, or it's I, that or I also think like every every kid like no matter how good your childhood was you have something your parents did that you vow that you will never do to your own kids sure. but then it but then you like inadvertently do some different thing <laughs> like in your quest not to do that thing that your parents did yeah it's it's not it's not quite a monkey's paw scenario but there's something like that where it's like well i i You're wish to not do if you yes. do damned yeah. if you don't yeah pick an axiom you'll live it out but, spare the rod spoil the child uh Something carry a big stick. What? A What's that spank, one? A spanking in the hand is worth two in the bush. Whoa, okay. <laughs> so this is a cool book. This is a fun book. Cool book. Cool book. I li- I like Gaiman anytime I get a chance to read him. So great. Yeah. Uh, if any of our listeners out there have read this or have uh, uh, any questions about it, you should write us an email at overduepod at gmail dot com. We got a bunch in the last week in response to our recent episode. So I do want to give a shout out uh, to Sarah and Uzma and uh, Holly and Julie and Ricky and Kaylee and Albie and a couple others who wrote in. Um, thank you so much guys. And we have a couple other that we've been sitting on. Um, our emails are great. Uh, also you can find us on social media at facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. There was a lot of response to last week's episodes, both Snow Crash and our election bonus episode, if you haven't listened to that. So here's the long list. I'm going to go for it. Andrew, I want to thank Melissa. Well, yeah. Uh, I want to thank <laughs> Melissa, Florencia, Lee, John, Scott, Teresa, Jennifer, Anna, Jay, Lena, Rachel, Philip, Bridget, Adam, uh, Lynn, Elizabeth, Annie, Rachel, Julie, Nada, uh, Leanne, Ariel, Jeremy, Rob, Sonia, Dave, Emmett, Lucas, Starfish, Chick, Ellen, in 
trepidly. Claire says what? Graham, Kate, Mr. J, Erica, Charlotte, Whitney, Melissa, Mrs. Tr- oh, my autocorrect missed it up. You know what it is. Trethethick. Uh, Do I? <laughs> she does. Swartzwelder, uh, Lydia, Jess, Rachel, Asthma, uh, Theater Trash, uh, Christina, Fletcher, Allison, uh, Catherine, Eric, Camille, Sophie, and probably some others that I didn't get to. You guys made last week great. Um, thanks Again. for reaching out to us. <laughs> Andrew, I hate you. <laughs> But just just thank you. Yeah, especially for people who reached out in reaction to the election episode. Like a lot of people told us like it just like meant a lot to them to hear us talking about that stuff. We did get a couple people who were like, you know, I am on the the other side of the political spectrum. And, you know, some people appreciated the things we were saying. Some people didn't. I hope that you were still hanging around either way. And we do want to hear from you and we want to, like, keep dialogue open with you because that's like that's the best thing that that any of us can do right now is just like keep keep talking and keep d- doing our best whatever we whatever our definition of that is you well, know my definition of best is that folks visit our website that's the best thing they could do andrew what's the our best website? thing you can do is visit our website overduepodcast.com <laughs> where we have links to our itunes page uh google play rss stitcher those are all ways you can subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they drop um, if you do subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. A lot of you've been doing that in the last couple of weeks, and we really appreciate it. Um, it helps us rise in the rankings, helps other people find the show. Um, you can find links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. We're going to have merch stuff go up there as we continue to uh, to release new stuff. Again, if you want to order shirts, please do it this week. We're going to keep tweeting. We're going to keep Facebooking links. But um, that is bit.ly slash overdue shirts, all one word, two designs, one logo, one try to be happy. Buy what you want. Buy both. Buy all the colors. I don't care. They got different sizes, too. They got different sizes for whatever your body is like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They do <laughs> for your body. Um, and also we've got a link to our Patreon page, which you can also access at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Um, that is a way you can subs- you can um, what support the show. There's the word I want in an ongoing way and help us buy books and help us buy hosting and, and all kinds of other stuff. Um, Craig, do you know what you're reading next week? Yeah, I we think uh, that's we at the end it. of November's episode list, right? Yes, it's the History of Love by Nicole Krause. Um, and we've got a bunch of good suggestions next month. I think for December we're gonna try and and read pretty much all like people of color or women, just to balance um, out the scales. We went on a dude run for a while, so yeah, you know, you know how it is when you go on a dude run. Gotta get some dudes, <laughs> Mr. Strom at the gas station. So yeah, we've got we've got a bunch of good recommendations. If you have recommendations, keep sending them over. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support, and just thank you for for interacting with us and just like helping us through stuff. Um, we'll we'll be back next Monday, everyone. Again, thanks, and try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>